You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Jonah prays. Philip Edwards will examine Jonah's prayer from the bowels of the earth and examine the debate whether or not he was raised from the dead. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, see our future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome to week two of our study uh, of Jonah. It's a four-week study and there are four chapters, so it seems automatic that we would do a chapter each week, although chapter two, and this is week two, uh, it's only ten verses and uh, it's just a prayer. So what we will do is go back into chapter one and we'll look at some other things there. What I want to look at this evening from chapter one is what I've called spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy, I think it's something that Jonah was suffering from. But before we uh, study, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Uh, As always, we come and thank you. Before anything, we thank you, Lord, because we appreciate everything that you do for us, every moment of every day. Lord, we thank you for your precious word. And as we study it this evening, we pray you'll open our hearts and minds uh, to the truth you want to convey to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Amen. Spiritual apathy. After our study last week, we were sort of shell-shocked about this man, Jonah, this prophet of God that's there with all the other great prophets in Scripture. We perhaps had a few more questions at the end of our study than we had at the beginning. I want to look first in this part, go back into chapter 1, and look at uh, the condition of this man, Jonah. We can all identify with the situation uh, that, um, that when things are routine in our lives, we do something that's routine, sometimes we can just do it and our mind just doesn't engage. We're active without applying our mind. It's a shame that we have to say sometimes you get in a car and you start to drive and then about, I don't know, a minute or two down the road you think, oh, I'm driving. And because you did it all automatically, we probably, drivers have all experienced that sort of thing. Or you go for a walk and all of a sudden you're just somewhere else and then you come back to the moment you think, oh, oh, I've walked quite a distance and my mind was completely somewhere else. Maybe it applies to other jobs that we just do automatically. I don't know, washing up the dishes or making beds or something. Our minds can just go somewhere else. Suddenly, we're brought back. We realise that we're awake again. Not conscious of perhaps what we were doing, but we were doing it just the same. Our Christian life can become a little bit like that. We're on autopilot. Alive once to God and the vibrancy of being a Christian and everything exciting has sort of mellowed down a little bit. We now get up every day and yes, we're Christians and we appreciate we're saved, but we just go through life and it's not as exciting as it was. Nothing much happens, as it were, in our Christian life We're moving in that same direction, but it's not vibrant. It's not full of life. There's no vitality anymore. How did we get there in our Christian life? Was it a series of perhaps small decisions that caught us just unawares and we just go through the motions? Maybe going to church can be like that. You just get up and you do what you do every Sunday and you go to church and you come home from church and you think, oh, I've done it for another week. What happened? Nothing dramatic, nothing exciting. We just went through the motions, as it were. 
that's a picture perhaps of spiritual apathy. We've lost the plot somewhere. When I asked last week if you thought the story of Jonah was a parable or a real historical event, of course, there are three answers, not two. You see, you say you could say, well, after listening to you, Phil, I just, I'm half convinced now it's a parable. That it wasn't real as I always thought it was. Or others have come back and said, no, I'm going to believe it's real because it, it throws up too many questions if I don't think it's real. There's a third answer, isn't there? Does it really matter? I don't really care. See, there's a danger if that's your answer. Apathy has set in. You see, you should be passionate about the stuff you read about. You should want to know to some extent. Now, you could say, well, in the end, Phil, we, we learn the lessons. But is that a sign of apathy? Spiritual apathy. Why do we study the scriptures? All of you who come or listen, you're so faithful to doing it. What we know is the knowledge that we acquire. It's far more important the knowledge you acquire to what you believe. You go, really? Surely what I believe is the important thing. It's what I believe. Save me. Is knowledge more important than what we believe? See, the danger is what you believe can be true or false. You might believe things that just aren't true, but you believe them. So we can't just think, because I believe it, it's true. Knowledge helps us determine what is the truth. So as we study this, it's important that we find out as far as we possibly can, what is the truth? Otherwise, I'm believing something that isn't true. See, it's important that we believe the truth. What you believe becomes the roadmap for your life. If you believe things that are not true, you'll end up in the wrong place on this journey. We study God's word then so that we will come to a knowledge of the truth. And it's the truth that sets us free. So if we haven't come to the truth, then we're not going to be free by that definition. This amazed me when I, I don't know whether I read about it or heard about it, but when I thought about it, it, it made me sit up. God has designed salvation so that we can just believe. He reveals something to us and we just believe it. There's something happened. Has he given us the faith or was the faith there so we could believe? We know then that we are saved through what we believe. Yet know nothing else about salvation. Isn't that amazing? You could read John 3.16 and believe and be born again and be, a, be saved and spend the rest of eternity, the life here and the life in eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ, simply by believing and live in ignorance for the rest of your life. Never pick up your Bible, never go to church, never study the Word of God. Completely ignorant, and yet you go to heaven. Live with Jesus forever and ever and forever. It's amazing, isn't it? What a salvation he's designed. It does, it's not about the intellect. It's just about believing. And he's done all the work. That's the grace of God, that he would do it all. And you just believe. And that's it. Of course, the legalist likes to add stuff on all the time. But the truth is, you can't add anything on to that. Believing then saves us 
But knowledge sets us free. See, that's why you're here, whether you realize it or not. You're hungry for knowledge because you want to live in greater degrees of freedom. There is a freedom that comes from understanding God more. I pray each week. I probably pray that same prayer every week don't I, about having greater understanding that we might love him more and know him more. But it isn't believing that does that. It's the knowledge that we, we gather. God loves the Ninevites. We've learned that. That's the knowledge of God's truth. What the Ninevites are like is clear for all to see, but God still loves them. That is the truth. What you believe, it doesn't matter. It's what is the truth. God can see what they're doing. He's not ignorant or blind. That's why he sent his servant, wasn't it, Jonah? To turn them around. He loved them and he wanted to turn them around. Such a vicious people, but they were his people on the earth. We're all his people and he loves all of us. He loves everything that he's made. And so he sends Jonah to turn him around. Jonah flees, we looked at last week. He runs in the opposite direction. God, God pursues him with little mercy. Isn't that interesting? There's a name for this. It's called severe mercy. Have you ever read the poem, The Hound of Heaven, or oh, well worth reading? God's on your case, you see. He'll hunt you down until he gets you. The hound of heaven. Severe mercy. We see this is what Jonah suffered, wasn't it? God was being merciful to him in the same way he was being merciful to the Ninevites. But he seems to be merciless in his mercy. It's severe mercy. The storm he sends is so violent after him that the ship threatens to break up. We read this last week. The force of the storm matches God's fierce love for the Ninevites and Jonah. Has God ever hunted you down? In my own experience, I... I felt God hunt me down once. And when he caught me, he made me deal with everything in my life that was in front of him or between us. He was quite severe in his actions towards me. The sailors, they're wide awake in this storm. They're throwing their cargo overboard. That's their livelihood. That's what they make their money out of. If they don't turn up with the cargo, they don't get paid for the voyage. They get nothing. But they're throwing it overboard because their lives are more important than the cargo. They're praying to their different gods, it says. They're, they're assuming that he downstairs is praying to his God as well. Maybe his God will answer or one of their gods will answer. They know this is no ordinary storm. This is wild. Maybe they've never experienced a storm quite like this. They're experiencing something not of the ferocity of God's anger, but the passion of his love. To reach his man and to reach the Ninevites. And he's going to use this man, Jonah, to do that very thing. They're thinking, one of us must have done something really bad for the gods to do this to us. To make him so angry towards us. What's apathetic Jonah doing? He's sleeping. Honestly, it isn't like the peaceful sleep of Jesus in the back of a boat. It's nothing like that at all. It's apathetic, you see. 
he's sleeping. He's below deck, deep in the ship. He is in deep sleep, it says. It does exaggerate everything in this book, we know. But the language here is obvious. He went down to Joppa. He went down below decks. He lay down and he fell into a deep sleep. We're used to this sort of stuff now, aren't we, as we study this bit. Oh, more of this, Philip. You didn't really have to point it out. We're getting the, the hang of it now. He's descended, you see, into a spiritual slumber. A spiritual apathy has taken hold of him. How did he get into such a state as this? His sin led him there. In small degrees, you see, it wasn't a big leap into apathy. It just got there. Slowly, slowly, slowly. Through his life, he had made a series of decisions that led him there. We can do that, can't we? One day we're passionate about something and we look back and we're thinking, where has that passion gone? What has happened? We've made a few mistakes along the way. Jonah runs from what God has clearly told him to do. Does he think he knows better than God? His sin has made him like this. He's blissfully unaware of what's going on around him. Jonah was a prophet. He was supposedly an ardent follower of God. We read all the other prophets and we see how passionate they are about God. It seems that's why God chose them and they were like that and he made them worse. They would stand and just declare the truth, which was usually terrible for the nation to hear. Brave, courageous men. Yet this man is nothing like that. How did he get himself into this place? See, staying focused is important to all of us. It really is. Sometimes we think we've been a Christian a long time and I can take my foot off the pedal now, really. I'll just coast in, as it were. No, 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 that's dangerous. (laughs) You won't coast in, you'll coast out. I tell you that. You have to keep passionate about this stuff. Who is suffering as a result of this man's bad decisions? (laughs) Well, Obviously, the sailors are. He's like a wrecking ball around people, isn't he? I mean, these men are really innocent, getting on with their life, as it were. He gets on board, and their life is being smashed in front of them. See, sin causes havoc and pain in the lives of people around us. Mm. Our morality, our personal decisions, in fact, affect the people around us. And those that are closest to us, they get affected the most. Some people say, oh, I can do what I like as long as it doesn't hurt other people. It always hurts other people. Unless you live on an island and there are no other people, that would work. But we don't live on islands. We live in relationships sometimes very close relationships. Eventually, all these little moral decisions they built up and they affected the people that were around him. All of these uh, small uh, compromises affected people, but affected him very deeply. He's sleeping, and so much of what God is doing is around him all the time, and he hasn't got a clue. The captain wakes him up, urges him, 
Call on your God. We're calling on our God. We've got to stop this. We'll all be dead if, if this thing doesn't cease. <laughs> the prophet is reminded to pray by the pagan. Really? You see, it's there again. Surely. How crazy is this little book? What irony we read. The sailors cast lots to determine which one. Jonah wins. Surprise, surprise. He wins the lottery. He tells them that he is responsible for the calamity that's happening around them. In response to the sailors' questions, he answers, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, he says, the God of heaven who made the seas and the land. We looked at this last week. Now he doesn't worship God for one minute. If he did, he would fear him because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He doesn't do what God asks him to do ever in this whole story. His words are a direct contradiction to his actions. He is a deeply hypocritical man. What an awful man this Jonah is. What's happening here? A mirror is being held up, isn't it? We read it. The idea of reading scripture is that it's a mirror to our soul. God seldom wags the finger. Unless we refuse to read his book, then he might wag the finger. He wants you to read it. And as you read it, it gently comes back to you. God doesn't want to judge us. He wants the book to judge us, you see. That's a lot easier. It's a mirror. We can all think we're superior to Jonah. We can all feel a little bit smug. I wouldn't have done that, you say. I'd have acted differently. <laughs> uh, do we kid ourselves sometimes? The sailors can see that this man is deeply offensive to his God. It's him. They've cast lots. It's this man. He's even said, it's, it's me. Isn't it interesting that people outside of God can often see more clearly the obvious contradictions between what we say we believe and what we do? Jesus said, they will know you. Who are they? The world. They will know you by the way that you conduct your life, the way you love one another. And they have every right to judge you because God said they could. And they do. You ever been called a hypocrite? I don't think you can escape being a Christian without being called a hypocrite. They said the church is full of hypocrites saying one thing and doing another. Jonah is without doubt a thoroughly imperfect witness. Does this limit God? That he is so off the mark. He is so bad. Does it stop God using Jonah? Apparently not for one moment. Isn't this incredible, this story? I mean, we'd have been this person a long time ago. We'd have looked for someone else. That's not what God does. He says, this is nothing for me. I can, I can make this work out for good and I can teach the whole of a nation and I can teach people for thousands of years through this man's story. I can save thousands of lives through this man's story. I'm so encouraged because God works in us in spite of our imperfections and we've got some, haven't we? We have... And we need to be honest with ourselves about them.
What should the sailors do then? He suggests that they kill him. Throw him overboard. <laughs> this can mean two things. Number one, this is what he deserves, and that is absolutely true, because he got them into such a mess. The second is, he'd rather die than go to Nineveh and save these people. He set himself up against the knowledge of God. He feels so righteous about what he's doing. Isn't it absolutely crazy when you look at it? This is God telling you to do something, and you're saying, no, I'm not. In fact, I'd rather die than do what you want me to do, God. Is this a further hardening of his heart? The sailors think this is a terrible idea to kill this man. So they start to row this boat. That must have been a hard job. Half the time their oars weren't even in the water. It was so ferocious, this storm. They make efforts then to escape the storm. But it says God makes it even wilder. He says, none of you will escape me. If he spoke, he would have said, you're all safe. But I'm on this man's case. He will go to Nineveh. He will do what I've requested of him. So the sailors think, here we go then. Whoosh. Overboard he goes. They're convicted in their hearts. Well, they've murdered him, haven't they? This man will not survive. No way. We've just killed this man. But once overboard, the sea just calms down. They're sort of not confused, and they are confused, because they worked out it was him, and his God was angry, and now it's all tranquil. So they thought, well, we chucked the right bloke over, if nothing else. And it was him that insisted upon it all along. God is appeased. What else are they to think? That's what you would have thought. But then they start to fear God. I don't know what gods they had. They obviously had some sort of gods and there were demon forces behind their gods. But this God is a powerful God. Wow. Maybe they've never seen a power manifested like this. And it says they fear the Lord. Jonah said he feared the Lord, but he didn't, did he? He was a liar. These men were not lying. They genuinely feared the Lord. When they got back to land, it says that they offered sacrifices. It says, at this time, uh, so at this, the men greatly feared the Lord. See, they're calling him the Lord. They greatly feared the Lord. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And they made vows to the Lord. Isn't that what you did at salvation? You greatly feared. Because for the first time in your life, God showed you you were a sinner. And you needed to do something about the sin in your life, so you greatly feared the Lord. Then you offered a sacrifice, or rather, a sacrifice was offered for you, and you accepted the sacrifice. Just as these men offered sacrifices, you offered a sacrifice, and then you made vows to the Lord. Isn't it amazing? They were saved, you see. They got saved. We say, well, Jesus wasn't that, I know. But there were lots of people who were saved before Jesus. They had their trust in the Lord, and when Jesus came, salvation would be theirs. I understand they were held captive, as it were, when they died, but when Christ died, they were released. These men were released when Christ came. They were held in that compartment in Hades, 
until the Savior died for them. Even when we are totally incapable, God is still in the business of saving people. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't need you to save anybody then, does he? He's not dependent on us. He just invites us to this exciting adventure, this wonderful experience of doing something in our lives, because most of the things that we do in our lives just evaporate away in time. But winning someone to Christ is something of eternal value. There will be people, I hope there are people who come to you and say, you know, if it, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here. Of course, they know it's God. But you, you took me to church. You shared the truth with me. You, and you're thinking, wow, they're here in eternity because of something I said or did. I stumbled through a conversation that somehow got them to turn to Jesus. What a wonderful thought that is. The greatest tragedy in chapter 1 is that God is doing these amazing things all around his prophet, his man, and he hasn't got a clue what's going on. He's not tuned in spiritually. He's missing it all because he's apathetic. Spiritual apathy set in. He's tuned out of what God is doing. <laughs> Will he ever wake up? Will this man ever wake up? Well, as he's falling down through the water, he's starting to wake up now. <laughs> this, this looks like curtains. All this stuff about throw me overboard. Now he's in the reality of it. Now he's starting to wake up. See, he can't go any further down. He is at the absolute bottom, spiritually speaking. And that's what the writer has shown us. He hits the bottom, as it were, and the, the instrument of death is swallowing him up in the sea. He's at the end, you see. This instrument of death, though, becomes the vehicle of grace for a new start in his life. Isn't that wonderful? Going, this sounds a bit like the gospel to me, Phil. This death that I was experiencing, it was so awful. But it was death that became the vehicle of your salvation. He gets a second chance, just like me and you. God gave us a second chance. We were dying. We were dead in our sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, he sent Jesus at the point of death to save us. I think this is why Jesus appeals to this story when he's preaching and teaching. We find it in Hebrews 12, 38 and 40. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they said to him, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Oh, all the time. Always looking for something miraculous. But what he would like to have said to them was, can't you see God everywhere? Are you so blind you can't see him? I see God in everything. I see him in the lilies of the field. I see him in the bread. I see him with the children. I see when women are sweeping the path. I see him all the time. You want another sign? You're blind. 
You can't see God anywhere. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation ask for a miraculous sign, but he says, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The prophecy is to Israel. Israel can't go any deeper into rebellion. They were there so many times. That's why the prophets came, to tell them where they were. God meets them. He's always prepared to meet people right there in their brokenness, in arrogance and pride, he resists us, but when we're broken, he's there instantly to put us together. Death is turned into life for this man. Jesus is what we call the antitype of Jonah. We know what a type is. A type is Jonah would be a type of Jesus. But Jonah was an antitype of Jesus. He was a type, but he was the opposite of what Jesus was going to be. The world is like it is. So Jesus died for us. His death becomes our vehicle of life. Like Jonah, we have an opportunity to be a new and a different person. What a wonderful opportunity. After the break, we're going to read his prayer. I want you to imagine as he sinks down in this water, what he's thinking. Is he thinking, God, give me another chance. I'll do anything if you get me out of this mess. Have you ever prayed that one? I'm sure you have. Jonah is living on pure grace. That's it. He deserves nothing from God. He's at the very end. He's living simply by the grace of God. He can do nothing to save himself. God has to intervene and do something for him. at the place where he meets his own death. He meets God. All that he's done up to now, he was oblivious to God, didn't care, ran in the opposite direction. But as he's going down in the water, God is looking directly into his face. Do you know what the Christian church is? It's a community of people who are slowly waking up to the reality that God is looking into our face. And we're surviving on pure grace. Oh no, I've come a long way. We have to realize God has to do something for us. For years we might have thought we can do something for him, but as we get older we realise I can do nothing. I'm dependent purely on his wonderful grace in my life. We're waking up to the fact that we're helpless. When you, when you get there, you're getting somewhere. You're not fully there yet, but you're nearly there. As Abraham decides to kill his son, he's helpless, isn't he? He can do nothing but slaughter his son, kill him. But again, at the point of death, God meets him there. 
You see, you've got to die. You've got to die. And God meets you then at the point of death. I think we need a little break now, otherwise we won't survive. See you back after the break. Okay, uh, welcome back. We, we're going to look at chapter 2 now. Like I said, it's only a, um, a short chapter, just 10 verses. He's inside now, uh, the belly of the large fish, and he's going to uh, construct a wonderful little prayer. And uh, I've asked Eileen if she'd come again and uh, read this to us, please. So Jonah 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Cramped then in the stomach of a whale, Jonah utters a prayer. Did you listen along with it carefully? He never technically says sorry, does he? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It, it doesn't cross his lips at all. Um, you see, most normal people would have woken up, wouldn't they? And realized they'd blown it. He does thank God, though, for not abandoning him. I suppose that's good. And he promises he will obey him from this point forward. Well, sometimes our children obey us, but you just have to look into their face and see that they're not obeying you in here, are they? They're a man you because they have to obey you. My, I think personally Jonah was a, a bit like that. And God's response to Jonah? He vomits him out. <laughs> I think that's really this like you got you gotta love it. It's just written so wonderfully this book. It's like ah, off you go. So the comical story continues. From inside the fish, it appears he's not dead, but is he dead? I, I looked this up on Wikipedia. You might frown to start with, even uh, me having suggested this, but I thought it was interesting what it said. It said, while the veracity, the truth of the story is in question, it is physically possible for a sperm whale to swallow a human whole. It is possible. As they are known to swallow giant squid whole. However, such a person would be crushed, drowned, or suffocated in the whale's stomach. Like ruminants, the sperm whale has four chamber stomachs. So we see pictures of this enormous... <laughs> cavern as it were and he's just sitting there sloshing about in water well it's nothing like that at all the enzymes would corrode his skin there would be a lack of oxygen for a start for him to be there all that time 
and probably methane gas would have been in there to just suffocate them and gas him to death. As I just thought, I thought, this thought came to me only this afternoon. I thought, but God could have created a fish there and then, couldn't he? I mean, God can do anything. So there could have been a fish that he made that didn't exist before, and it would come along and swallow him up and puke him out. I didn't believe it for one minute, but I thought I'd just pop it in there. Uh, with God, anything can really happen. What's he doing inside this fish? Well, he is composing a beautiful, intricate Hebrew poem. <laughs> that represents, I mean, just, it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? Would you have thought all this up in the whale of a belly in that awful situation? I mean, it's just, it's so poetic. It's just... Unbelievable, and prophets were good at poetry. They were a lot of a lot of the prophet prophetic words. They're very um, poetic, and we'll see this a little bit later. There's two views here. Remember about this whole thing. It's a historical event, and the story comes from Jonah himself. It really happened, and he's telling you the story or the author expects you to see that it's a parable. I won't give you the answer. I mean, I could persuade you the way I'm thinking, but, but really, you've got to work that one out yourself. But all agree that the book is really written in quite comic form. We've laughed more studying this than we've laughed at any other time, I think, because it's, it's the nature of the book. And it's over-the-top characters, isn't it, really? I mean, just a little bit. The great fish, then. Let's uh, fixate on the fish for a little bit in this particular lesson now. What does the author expect us to see in this moment of the story? There's two aspects, possibly. One is how the people saw it then, and how do we see it today? See, it's vastly different. We see things in a completely different context to the way that the people who first heard it would have. And we've got to always think about context. It, wasn't, it was sort of written for us, but primarily written for them, the Jewish people. And sometimes it, it flows over quite easily. Other times we need to understand what's going on here so we sort of make sense of it all. <laughs> we read a lot in the Bible, and to be quite honest, we don't get it, do we? We don't understand it. I mean, if you read the Bible through, it just becomes so tiring to read through all that prophetic... I mean, it's a wonderful book. And it's brilliant, and it's God's brilliant masterpiece. But really, it's hard. You would have to know so much to make sense of it, and we haven't got enough time on the planet to do that. So we read it, and we pick out verses that we like. This isn't a good thing to do. It's a bit like the old promise box. Do you know what a promise box is? Oh, I remember my grandmother had one. It was a box so big, and it had verses that were rolled into scrolls, and they were all placed in the box. There must have been several hundred. And, and on the top of this little box, there was a tweezer. And you could pick out one of these and read it. It was a, like a promise, and then you scroll it and put, put it back in. It was like Chinese cookies. You know what I mean? They're the same sort of thing where you just open it up. So we have to be careful that we don't just pull a verse out and say, oh, this is good, you know, God will do this for me. Yeah, but when, where, how, how does it fit in? Does he really promise that? So, yeah, we, we have to be careful. If we do this promise box thing, we can actually make the Bible say anything we want it to say. We can tailor make it to our desires. So the first rule, then, for reading the Bible is that we read it in context. Always in context first. Not that God 
can't lift it out of its contest of thousands of years ago and bring it to today. But first we start with it there. The story. Or a sentence in a story can have lots of meanings. That's why context is important to us. How did the first hearers interpret this story then? Jonah is a prophet. That's the context of it. It's a prophetic book. When did they appear in history? The prophets, I mean. Were they always there through 4,000 years of Old Testament history? Or were they just there for a short period of time? When did they appear in history? See, I'm putting it in context. It's got to make sense. Why did they appear? And when they appeared, why did they say what they said? In the history of Israel, he brings them out of captivity. He gives them the law, the Torah, the first five books, passes it down through Moses. It tells them, his people, the nation that he has now created, how to live in covenant relationship with him. That's what the, the book of the law is all about. He wants his people to be witnesses to the nations of the world. His plan is that the whole world will be redeemed. His plan was always to save the world. He starts with this small group with an idea that they will spread out. But they refuse and turn away from God. So this is where the prophets come in. The prophets, if you look... Uh, they only lasted between 960 BC and 580 BC. Not long. They were there for just 380 years. Well, out of 4,000 years of the Old Testament, 380 years is not very long, is it? So they were only there for a short period of time. They were there specifically to tell the people of Israel to get their act together because God had a mission for them, but of course they constantly refused to do so. The prophets, they speak directly from God. They speak to the people, and they speak in poetic verse. This is why this is so poetic. He's a prophet. He's speaking like a prophet. Let me give you an example. This is Hosea. Hosea 8, 1 to 4. Put the trumpet to your lips. What's he saying? He's saying, warn the people. But he's not saying warn the people. He's saying, put the trumpet to your lips. He's being poetic, you see, in the way that he's talking. And he goes on to say, an eagle is over the house of the Lord. What's he saying? Assyria is the eagle. And it's coming to pounce on you, to take you away, is what he's saying. And the reason, and this is a little bit clearer, it's not so poetic, because the people have broken my covenant and they've rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, oh our God, we acknowledge you, but Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent and they choose princes without my approval. With silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. That's the work of the prophet. Bringing the word of the Lord, often in this poetic way, Israel constantly breaks covenant with God. They try to live independent of God going their own way, mm, just like Jonah. Isn't it strange? This prophetic book is a picture as opposed to God warning them about what they're doing wrong. We had a little look at that last week. Back to Hosea again, chapter 8, 8 to 10, this poetic way of speaking from the Lord. Israel is swallowed up, he says. Now she is among the nations like a worthless thing, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. You go, 
You're very nice. What are you driving at here? Okay. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. Although they have sold themselves among the nations, I will now gather them together. They will begin to waste away under the oppression of the mighty king. Look at the metaphors. Israel is swallowed up like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. Mm. But I'm interested in one of these metaphors. Israel is swallowed up. Did you see it? Swallowed up. This is what happened to Jonah. He was swallowed up. Jeremiah hits this again. Jeremiah 51 and 34. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. He has thrown us into confusion. He has made an empty jar. Like a serpent, he has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies. And then he has spewed us out. Isn't it interesting? The picture that we see is the way the prophet spoke. So this if it is a concocted story, is wonderfully written. It's the very same things the prophets would have said, the very same way they would have spoken from the Lord. God has allowed the beast to swallow up his people, Jeremiah says. We get a similar thing in Psalm, Psalm 124, 4 and 5. The raging waters would have swept us away, it says. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. Hmm. Very common then for both the prophets and the psalmist to speak of drowning and being swallowed up, as it were. The writer of Jonah, he's turning to the narrative. He's writing a story. He's telling a story. He lives the whole story. Instead of proclaiming it, he is living it out before us. This is what the first hearers would have heard, you see. When they read or heard this story being preached, they would have thought, this is familiar. This language, we've been hearing it for years. The prophets speak like this all of the time. They would have said, this is, this is our story. We know it too well. Down and down and down, and eventually we're trapped. You see, as they resisted God, they would go down and down and down and be trapped. Trapped in sin, trapped in pain, trapped in confusion. We're here, they would say. We're in a mess of our own making, like Jonah. Here I am in a mess of my own making. I can blame no one else. Sin has brought me down to this place. He, it is prophetic to the nation. It's a picture of them. What can we do when we hear the people say? Pray, they say. Turn to God in prayer and petition God. When you want to come out of hardship and suffering, you turn to God and pray. And so this is what Jonah is doing in the well of the belly. He's been swallowed up by a powerful enemy. And now he's praying to his God. As you read through the Old Testament scriptures, you find that there were other people who were swallowed up, but it was not because of their sin. We've studied Daniel together. Daniel was swallowed up, wasn't he, by the beast Babylon. But it wasn't because of his sin. It was his forefather's sin that got him into this place. For those hundreds of years when they didn't do what God had asked them to do, he got swallowed up by the enemy, almost taken in. Joseph was another one. He was swallowed up as well because of Israel's sin, swallowed up by the enemy. Was God responsible for them being swallowed up? God isn't the author of all circumstances. He can't be. 
he would never have orchestrated all the wars that have happened. He wouldn't do that. That's just ridiculous to even think that he would. So he is not the author of circumstances, but while at the same time he is not surprised by them, and so he moves in them, fulfilling his providence. God works all things out redemptively for his purpose. That's a mystery, isn't it, how he does that? We seem to make decisions, even opposed to what he wants to do, and yet it all works out. What an example with Jonah. You can't be more against what God wants you to do all the time, and yet it goes perfectly to plan. Perfectly to plan. You might get stuff wrong, but God will use everything that is done wrong for the good, not often for your good, often for the good of people around you. And it's only when you look back in life you go, oh, I see what that was all about. Or perhaps you don't see. And one day you'll say, God, can you explain that? Because I never understood that. And he says, let me show you what happened. And you'll see stuff outside of where you are that God is accomplishing through that. God is not responsible then for the circumstances of this story, but he is working in it. He's working out his perfection. God was with Daniel. He was with Joseph. He is with so many of us. But God is not a genie, is he? He's not a genie to get us out of our problems. There's a way of Christian thinking that somehow it'll all work out well. Somehow it'll resolve everything. Well, in the end, it all works out well. But while we're down here, it doesn't work out well. It just doesn't. And we have to come to terms with that. But in the end, it'll all be resolved. This is called God's Severe mercy. We'll look at this a little bit later, this severe mercy thing. Oh, we'll get really into that. Did Jonah die in the belly of the fish? Come on, let's hit it head on. If you believe that Jonah is a parable, it would make sense he died because he was a type of Jesus. That would make sense that he died. But I also suggested he's already an anti-type of Jesus. That although he was foretelling him, Jesus was quite the opposite from what he was. So is he a type or is he an anti-type? Oh, Philip, why do you make it always so more confusing? Just We don't know. Those who accept that this is a literal account, they take two views. He died and later returned to life. Well, that would have been a miracle, wouldn't it? Or Jonah remained alive for three days and three nights in the belly of the well. But that would have been a miracle at all as well, wouldn't it? You know what I mean? It's like whichever way you go with it, if it's literal, God was working miracles here because I think I've done sufficient to indicate he could not survive that time in the well. And if he died, then God could have just raised him from the dead again. Those who argue that Jonah died and later rose appeal to his prayer. He says this, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me, From the depth of the grave. Another word grave is the word sheol which is Hades, or hell, or the place of the departed spirits. So they would say, you see, he cried out from Sheol. He cried out from the place of departed spirits, and God brought him back to life again. He had passed from life to death, and God had resurrected him. He says, I called for help, 
and you heard my cry from Sheol. You heard me and you brought me back to life again. The word Sheol, it can mean the depths of the grave. It can also mean poetically, because he's writing poetry here. It can mean an agonizing, horrible place. It's like hell on earth. Well, it's not really, is it? But I can imagine if you were in the midst of a war, you might say, this is hell on earth. And so poetically, perhaps he was speaking like that. It says in Psalm 86, 12 and 13, I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all of my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love towards me. You have delivered me from the depths of the grave. You have delivered me from Sheol. He didn't mean that he had died, the, the, the psalmist, but I was in a terrible place and you lifted me up. There is another reason that some argue for Jonah's death and resurrection. We've already touched on this. Jesus said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the large fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now Jesus said that. He was likening himself to Jonah. He was going to die. Was he saying that Jonah died? And in the same way that God raised Jonah from the dead, I too will be raised from the dead. Is that the point that he's making? Our problem is that the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly that Jonah died. <laughs> See, it does that all the time. What is the evidence that Jonah stayed alive? First, Jonah prayed from inside the fish. It says so here, so it must have been true. At the very least, he lived long enough to pray his prayer. Second, the term grave and pit do not have to be interpreted literally. Did Jonah die or was he alive the whole time? See, the truth is, Either interpretation is possible. But traditionally, we believe he was alive. It doesn't make it true, though, just because it's traditional, that he spent three days and three nights and he emerged to reluctantly take God's message to Nineveh. And next week we will look at just that. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.